All right, you can turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. It's Easter Sunday, which is the, the day when we celebrate together the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just so we're all clear, we celebrate it as a historical fact. Not as a fun story that we just tell our children. It is a fun story. It's a beautiful story, but it's more than a story. It's an event that actually happened 2,000 years ago, an event that is well supported by historical evidence. And if you'd like to see that evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus, we'll be putting that out on Facebook and on Twitter this afternoon and tomorrow, or you can go to our website, to the homepage, and under resources and frequently asked questions, a big one says, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? And it lists all the major evidence for the resurrection. It will show you that that belief in in Jesus' death and resurrection is not a blind leap into the dark. It's actually a well-supported step of faith. It's very reasonable to believe that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. So all that evidence is available for you. We're not going to talk about that this morning. You can check that out on your own or talk to me about that later. This morning, we're not going to talk about the evidence for the resurrection. We're going to talk about the relevance of the resurrection. Why does Easter matter to you? Why does the death and resurrection of Jesus matter to your daily life 2,000 years later? What is the point of Easter to you personally? What did Easter accomplish for you? Let me answer that question by asking you a very different question. Why was the Harry Potter series so popular? Harry Potter, seven books that have sold in total 450 million copies. By far the most of any modern literature. Second place is way below that. The movies, based on those books, have earned $8 billion. It is easily the most popular, widely read story written in the last hundred years. So why is it so popular? Well, lots of potential reasons. It's full of magic. Most people like magic. And it's British, and everything British is cool. Um, And it's well-written compared to most young adult fiction, like pick up Twilight, and you'll see what I mean. Potter's way better written. So a, a lot of different reasons. But I think the most important reason, most significant reason, why Harry Potter is so incredibly popular is that it connects with a primal desire we all share, the desire to belong. So what's the story? You got an orphan boy who is rejected by his adopted parents and marginalized by the world he lives in. So he doesn't fit in. He doesn't have any friends. Everyone forgets his birthday. He lives under a staircase. He, he doesn't at all belong to that world. He's completely neglected. But then a letter shows up and And that letter changes everything because all of a sudden Harry Potter belongs. He is invited into a world where he is special, where he is valued, and and he finds in that world a family that, that cares about him and loves him. We love that story because it's timeless, it's ageless, and it's what we all want. The core of our being, that's what we want. That's why J.K. Rowling made billions of dollars off Harry Potter because she connected to a desire we all have. We want to belong. We all want to belong. We want to be valued. We want to be special. That's why you did all those dumb things in junior high because you wanted to be special. You wanted to be valued. You wanted to belong. We all desperately desire a family where we are loved and valued and cared for. And that is what Easter's about. That's the point of Easter. 
Easter is when God provided for you a family where you can belong, where you can be valued and loved and special and cared for. That's Easter. It's God inviting you into his family, the best family of all, the family of God. Let me prove that to you. Look with me, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, let's start in verse 4. Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Well, Paul tells us that we've been adopted into the family of God, but before we get to adoption, Paul says the way we have been adopted into God's family is through the redemption that God the Son has provided. We have been redeemed by the Son. That's where Paul starts in verse 5. Now, what does it mean to be redeemed? Common word. You see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament many times, redeemed or redemption. It's a very simple word. It means to deliver someone or something from a desperate situation. Deliver someone from a desperate situation that they couldn't deliver themselves from. They were powerless. They couldn't set themselves free. So you deliver them, and usually that deliverance comes at a price that you pay. You pay some kind of price to set someone free from a desperate situation they couldn't deliver themselves from. Really easy to illustrate. How many of you have, at some point in your life, gone and gotten a dog or a cat from the pound? Anybody done that? wife and I have done that. We, we have a cat, Maggie, that we went to the pound to deliver. And think about it. So you go into the pound and you see all these dogs and all these cats and they are all caged. They're all locked in cages. Now, hopefully the cages are clean and smell nice, but regardless, they're still in a cage. They're basically prisoners in a cage and you feel sorry for them because you know if no one comes and delivers that dog or cat, eventually it's going to be put down. It, its life is, is threatened. And so you walk into the pound and you look around and And all of a sudden, there's a particular dog or a particular cat that just draws you. You just get attached to it. You really want that dog or that cat. Or maybe your kids do because they're with you and they really want that dog or that cat. So what do you do next? You pull out your wallet and you hand over some money. You you pay money to the pound to redeem, to set free that dog or that cat so it can go home with you. That's redemption. A price was paid to set a creature free from a desperate situation that it couldn't deliver itself from. So Paul is saying that that Jesus has redeemed you. He has set you free from a desperately bad situation that you couldn't deliver yourself from. So let's ask ourselves, what have we been redeemed from? What is the desperate situation that we as human beings faced that we could not deliver ourselves from? What horrible situation has Jesus set us free from? Well, you get a clue. Paul says that, that Jesus showed up to redeem those who were under the law. What's the law? The law is God's standard of righteousness. His revelation of what is good and what is evil. The law tells you what is good, what is bad, and it it promises blessings for those who obey and and punishment for those who disobey. And our problem is, is we are usually on the wrong side of that equation. We do things that are wrong. We disobey the law of God, and so we deserve punishment, and that's really bad. That we deserve this punishment from God. Paul explains how bad that is. He walks you through what it means to be on the wrong side of the law. What it means for for us as human beings in our natural state to be in trouble before God's law. Paul walks us through that in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, "And, And you were dead 
and your trespasses and sins, and which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul's describing humans in our natural state. As we're born into this world, we face three problems. It's not just one problem. Three desperate situations that we can't deliver ourselves from. First, Paul tells us that humans in our natural state, we are slaves of sin. That's what he means when he says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead means powerless. You were powerless to resist sin because sin was in your nature. You were hardwired to sin. You desired sinful things and so you did those sinful things and it was incredibly hard to say no to those sinful temptations. It's very easy to prove that that's true of us. Just think about your kids. We we don't have to teach our kids how to be selfish and unkind and deceitful. They come hardwired with that. We have to work hard to teach them the opposite to teach them to be kind. We have to teach them to be selfless. We have to teach them to be truthful because that's not natural to them. They have to work at that. They have to learn that because the human heart is sinful. It desires bad things. And it's very hard to say no to those temptations. That's what it means to be slaves of sin. That's our first problem. We're born slaves of sin and we can't deliver ourselves from that. We find sin natural to us. It's incredibly hard to say no to. Second problem that Paul tells us, humans in our natural state, we are servants of Satan. He is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience in verse 2. Now, Satan is not a very popular topic to talk about. Most people in our world have dismissed Satan. He's just a metaphor, a symbol of evil, but the Bible doesn't give us that liberty. The Bible is very clear. He really exists. He's a real spiritual being, a demonic being who's incredibly powerful, astronomically intelligent, deceitful, insidious. He's incredibly wise, and he and and other demons like him are at work in this world, deceiving people and and hurting people and leading people to do bad things. And and the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Satan, very little that God tells us. But, But what God does tell us very clearly is that Satan is incredibly powerful, far more powerful than any of us. In fact, so powerful that it is impossible for human beings, even when we all gather together, it's impossible impossible for us to resist him. It is impossible for us to deliver ourselves from Satan, far too powerful for us. Unless God steps in and delivers us, all human beings would be helpless servants of Satan. That's the second problem. Now the third problem that Paul tells us. Humans in our natural state, we are children of wrath. Verse 3, we're children of wrath. This is even more unpopular and unpleasant to talk about than the previous one. What does Paul mean when he's talking about us as children of wrath? Well, Paul wants us to understand that God is righteous. We have a righteous God who has created a just universe where righteousness is rewarded and evil is punished. God's created a universe where evil will be punished, and that's good news. Because if if you're honest with yourself, you want to live in a world where evil is punished. You want to live in a righteous universe. Universe. You don't want to live in a world where things like murder and theft and rape are just excused and ignored and, and not punished. And you want to live in a just universe where evil is punished. You want that. The problem is we are evil. We do bad things. And because we're evil, because we do bad things, we deserve punishment. And you say, wait a minute, but I'm not as bad as that other guy. I'm not as bad as, as most people. 
Yeah, but that's a, that's a difference of degree, not an absolute difference, because we all think things and, and say things and do things that are evil, that, that make us worthy of punishment. I'll prove that to you. Okay, so let's take one particular sin, murder. That's a bad one, very clearly a bad one. I have not committed murder, so yay for me. I have not committed that sin. I feel good about the fact that I've not murdered anyone until I read what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. And then I don't feel so good because Jesus said, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. I've never murdered anyone, but I've said some bad things about people. I've been mean with my words. I'm going to guess that at some point in your life, you probably have too. And according to Jesus, according to the law of God, that makes us, all of us, just as guilty as someone who is a murderer. Okay, so there's one. Here's another sin. Uh, Adultery. I've never had an affair. So that's good for me because that's a bad sin. I've never had an affair. I feel good about myself until I read what Jesus said just a little bit after this one. Verses 27 to 28, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Dadgummit, Jesus just threw every man in this room under the bus of adultery. We're all guilty because God doesn't just care about what we do. He cares about what we think. He cares about our attitudes. He cares about what we love. He cares about every part of our lives. So you read the words of Jesus, you study the law of God, and you realize very certainly, very clearly, that there is no person in this room who is innocent. We are all guilty before a perfectly holy God. We've done bad things, we've said bad things, we've thought bad things, and because we have done those evil things, said those evil things, thought those evil things, we are worthy of punishment. We live in a righteous universe where evil must be punished, so we must be punished, and that is the wrath of God. God's wrath is God's punishment of sin, and that's why Paul says we are all born, of, born children of wrath, all human beings, because we do evil, we are children who deserve God's wrath. That's really bad news. Really, really bad news. Paul wants us to understand there's nothing we can do to deliver ourselves from any of this. We couldn't fix even one of these problems, let alone all three of them. And so we look at this incredibly desperate situation, this incredibly bad news that that we can't do anything about. We can't fix any of these problems. And then we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead. Why? So that God could fix what we couldn't. That's what Easter's about. God fixed what you couldn't fix. He sent his son to, to die for you and rise from the dead to redeem you, to set you free from all of these things that you couldn't fix in your life, that you couldn't deliver yourself from. God set you free from all of these through the gift of his son. Paul elaborates that on that in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. He says, in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Redemption, Paul equates it with forgiveness. To forgive means to set someone free, set free the, the guilt or the punishment that they deserve. You set them free of that. And so God has set you free. He has redeemed you from, from sin and from Satan and from wrath. And what was the price? Because there's always a price. It's got to be paid. The price was the blood of Jesus. His own life was given in exchange for yours. He gave his life to, to purchase you out of sin and, and Satan's kingdom and, and out of wrath. 
So, so Jesus paid for your redemption with his own blood. And what motivated him? What was the motivation inside Jesus that led him to go to the cross? Because he didn't have to. He's the son of God. Could have said no at any time. So why did he go to the cross? Paul says it right there. Because of grace. Grace, which is lavished on you. God's rich grace for you is what motivated Jesus to die in your place. Now, what is grace? Grace is just a gift. Grace means getting something good you don't deserve. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't pay it back later. Grace means you just get it for free. That's what redemption is, a gift of grace. You don't work for it. Jesus earned it so that you can have it for free. And that brings us back to a conversation that we started last week. What is it that distinguishes Christianity from Islam? What is it that makes Christianity different from Islam? Well, number one on the list we talked about last week, Christianity is Trinity. Your God is Trinity, God of Islam, Allah is not, and you want a God who is Trinity. It's infinitely better. Second item on the list that distinguishes Christianity from Islam is grace grace because how do you find forgiveness in islam well you go work for it you go do stuff for us five pillars that you have to keep in islam you have to confess muhammad as the prophet of allah and you have to pray multiple times a day and give alms to the poor and you got to fast and you got to take a pilgrimage to mecca and you've got to do those things hoping that by doing those things you will find forgiveness okay so it's about what you do christianity has the opposite answer you don't do anything to find forgiveness because it's a gift It's a gift that Jesus earned for you. He did it all. By dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he paid the full price. There's nothing you have to add in or pay back. He paid the full price so that you could have redemption as an absolutely free gift of grace. And so if you want to know the difference between Islam and Christianity, it boils down to this. Islam says do. Christianity says done. Islam is all about what you go do to find forgiveness. Christianity is about what Jesus already did, what he did 2,000 years ago to purchase redemption and salvation for you as an absolutely free gift. As I look at this and as I think about this, it reminds me of a movie that my wife and I watch a lot, Sound of Music. Who's watched Sound of Music? I bet most of you have seen it. It's my wife's favorite movie, so we watch it a lot, and it has a lot of songs in it that are pretty catchy, and some of them are better than others. Low on my list, least favorite song in the movie The Sound of Music, is sung by Maria when she and the captain have confessed their love for one another. I think they're in like a gazebo and they're singing to each other. And she sings, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could, so somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. No, Maria, no. (laughs) You're a Christian. That is not your God. That's the God of other religions who makes you go do something good so maybe he'll give you something good in the future. No. The God you worship is a God of grace. He gives you that which is good for free. He doesn't make you work for it. He doesn't make you earn it. Redemption is an absolutely free gift that Jesus earned for you. It's a gift that God offers to you. And all that's required of us, all you must do, if you have to know, is simply accept it. You just have to say yes to that gift. God doesn't force redemption on anyone. He doesn't force his grace on anyone. You have to say yes to the offer. You have to say, yes, God, I want that. I want to be redeemed from my sins. I want to be delivered from sin and from Satan and from wrath. And I believe that your son died for me and rose from the dead so that I could have redemption as a free gift.
The moment that you say to God, yes, yes, God, I want redemption. Yes, God, I believe Jesus died for me and rose from the dead so I could be forgiven for free. You are, at that moment, you're redeemed. You're set free from sin and Satan and wrath forever. You're set free as a completely free gift. So we have been redeemed by the Son of God. But redemption was not the goal. Redemption is is the means to the end. It's how God accomplishes what he really wants. You see, redemption isn't enough for God. He's not content to just redeem you from sin. That's not nearly enough for God. The whole purpose of redemption is to get you something even better, even better than being set free. What redemption makes possible is that better thing, adoption. You were redeemed by the Son so that you could be adopted by the Father. That's where Paul goes next. Look again at chapter 4, verse 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. Paul's talking about Roman adoption, Roman customs of adoption. In Roman adoption, a child was adopted into a family forever. It's a permanent change in familial relationships. So he's brought into the family forever, and once he's brought into the family, he enjoys all of the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. There's no difference between the natural children and the adopted children. That's what Paul is saying has happened to you. Through the redemption of Jesus, you have been adopted into God's family as full-fledged sons with all the rights and privileges that come with that. Now, some of you ladies might be wondering, why does Paul say adopted as sons? and not adopted as sons and daughters, as Paul being a chauvinist. Actually, exactly the opposite. You see, in the ancient world, to be a son was great. To be a daughter was not. If you were a woman in the ancient world, you were always under a man's absolute authority. Your father before you were married, and then your husband after you were married, and your marriage was arranged without your input. They didn't care what you thought. They arranged it, and then they transferred you like property from one household to the other, and you didn't have any property of your own other than the clothes on your back. Even your dowry belonged to your husband. So women were totally second-class citizens in the ancient world. And so Paul knows if, if he says that we have been adopted by God as sons and daughters, then women in the first century would wonder, well, am I a second-class part of God's family? Like I'm a second-class part of my earthly family? So Paul doesn't want to leave any room for doubt. So he makes it good. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, young or old, you are all adopted by God as sons. You're adopted into his family as as sons, meaning you're adopted as a child who has all the rights and all the privileges. You're not second-class women. You are not marginalized in the family of God. You have all the rights, all the privileges that any man does. We all get into this family on the same terms and enjoy the same privileges. We are all adopted as sons into the family of God. Now, that's, that's great news. Really great news that God would adopt us into his family as his own children. But that's not enough for God. He wants even more for you. There's something bigger. You've been adopted into the family of God as sons of God, but, but God has more in store for you. He has adopted you not just as a son, but as an heir. Look at the, uh, look a couple verses down, verse 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You're an heir. What's an heir? An heir is a person who inherits something from someone else. 
Now, in, in human inheritance, usually you would inherit after your parents die, right? But in God's family, it's the opposite. You inherit after you die. So, so you die, and then immediately God rewards you with, with your inheritance. And what is that inheritance? Well, it's big. It's got a lot of stuff. If you read through the Bible, you'll see that it's, it's a huge thing. I'll just give you the top four things, top four parts of your inheritance that God has in store for you. First, eternal life. You will inherit from God, the, the creator, the author of life. He will give you unending life, life that never ends. That's why we as children of God don't need to be afraid of death. The whole world fears death. We don't need to because death for us is only a moment, not even a second, just an instant as we move from this life to a better life, a better life where we will receive from God unending life, life that will never end. So we receive from God eternal life, first part of our inheritance. Second part, resurrection. God will, will resurrect your body and make it perfect. And, and so you will enjoy a perfected body for all of eternity. A lot of people have this notion that, that heaven is full of disembodied spirits with little angel wings floating around on clouds. No, 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 no. That's not at all what it's going to be. It's, it's going to be real like this, real physical world where you will have your body. You will be you. You will have your body except it will be perfect. It will no longer age, it will no longer decay, no longer get sick, no longer feel pain. You will have a perfect, resurrected body. A body that can eat and, and laugh and run and explore and enjoy the third part of your inheritance. The third thing God will give you is the new heavens and the new earth. So God created this earth, this universe, but it's got an expiration date on it. Because at some point in the future, God's going to show up in this universe in all his glory and it is going to melt away. He's going to do away with this one because it is broken by sin and by evil and he's going to create a new one, a perfect one, a new earth joined to heaven where God will live with us and he will give that new heaven and that new earth to us. It will be our home. It'll be where we will live and the Bible tells us this new home, it'll be better than this one because there'll be no death, no sin, no, no pain, no suffering, no tragedies, no disasters, no war, no famine, no evil. It'll be a perfect earth that you will enjoy for all eternity and when you enter into that new earth that new heavens you will receive the fourth part of your inheritance dominion dominion over god's creation you see you were created to rule i don't know if you know that about yourself genesis 1 very clear god said let us make man in our image so that they may rule over the fish and the birds and basically all of his creation. You were created to be a king or a queen over God's creation, a benevolent ruler, ruling God's world for God's glory in a good way. But then sin got in the way and we lost our ability to rule the world in a good way. But God's not done with us. He's not given up on us. And so once he's perfected us and created a new heavens and a new earth, he will turn them over to us. We will rule them on his behalf for his glory. You will be a king or a queen ruling the creation of God for all eternity. Not because you're worthy of that, but because he decided that's your inheritance. You get to inherit authority over his new world. So you look at what God has done. Through the redemption of Jesus Christ that we celebrate on Easter, what God has made possible is for us to belong to a family, a perfect family, the family of God where we're adopted as sons with all the rights and privileges that come with that. We're adopted as God's heirs who will receive and enjoy his blessings for all eternity. And, and the result of all of that, the reason that you say that, because so far maybe it sounds kind of theological, kind of academic, the place where this really comes down and hits your life today, the reason that you've been adopted, the whole point of the whole relevance, Paul tells us, 
is so that we can call God Abba, Father. That's the point of this whole thing. You get to look at the creator of the universe and call him Abba, Father. Look with me at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic term for dad. It was an informal term of endearment that a child used with his father. It, it, it expressed intimacy between father and child. So much intimacy, in fact, that the Jews would never use this of God. You'd never find it in the Old Testament of God. They would never use that because to the Jews, God was high up there. He was God, we're not. He's high on the throne, he's distant. It felt sacrilegious to call him father or to call him Abba. They would never do it. But, but Paul tells us, well, they, they were mistaken. They were wrong. Because even though God is high up there on the throne, the creator, the master, the sovereign, yet he has chosen to invite us to call him dad, to call him father. When you think about this, when you try to wrap your mind around it, easiest illustration is for those of you who have kids, think about your kids. Mine are five, Luke and Gracie, both five years old. I I like to think about how they enter a room. Okay, so I'm, I'm sitting in a room and they walk in. What do they do? Well, they run to me, they jump on my lap, and they say, hi, Dad. And frankly, I wish they'd be a little gentler because they're getting big, and I'm old, and it kind of hurts how they do that. But I do love the way that they run to me, the way that they come to me without fear. They don't cower before me. They don't bow. They don't lie prostrate. They don't cross themselves. They come to me freely. They say, hi, Dad. They jump in my lap. And the amazing thing is, that's what God wants for you. Yes, that's crazy. He's holy. We're sinners. He's God. We're not. He's the creator. We're creatures. We don't deserve to even look at him. And yet in grace, he invites us. He calls us. He longs for us to run to him, jump on his lap and say, hi, dad. That's crazy. But that's what God wants for you. He wants you to know him as father, He wants you to look at him as dad who loves you, who cares about you. Now, for some of you, that's going to be hard because you think about God. Who is God to you? And for some of you, what comes into your mind, the picture that you have of God is an uncaring dictator. He created the universe, got a lot of worlds to run. He's really too busy for you. So he's an uncaring distant dictator far up there. Or for some of you, you think about God and what comes to mind is a hockey referee who's just skating around on the ice with the whistle in his mouth, and he's just ready. He's just looking at what you do. He's just waiting. You're going to blow it at some point. He's going to blow that whistle and throw you in the penalty box, and he can't wait. Or for some of you, you, you think of God as a disappointed parent. He's given you so many chances, and you've blown it every time. And he'd just really rather that you leave him alone. If, if that's true of you, if you think of God as, a, as a, a disinterested, distant dictator or a hockey referee or a disappointed parent, I'm here to tell you that you're wrong. You're wrong. That is not your God. That's a God of your own imagination. That's not God. Paul's very clear. Your God is your dad. Your dad who loves you. Your dad who, who created you for the express purpose of having someone else to love. It's love that motivated God's creation of you. He made you so that he could love you. He redeemed you so that he could adopt you as his son and as his heir forever. He loves you. He's not disappointed in you. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to enjoy his presence. He wants you to run to him and say, Abba, Dad, help me. That's the God you worship. Not a distant dictator, not a hockey referee, and not a disappointed parent. 
but a dad who loves you desperately. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would be willing to allow us to call you dad. We're not worthy of that. That's, that's not something that we deserve. We, we deserve punishment. We deserve to be neglected by you because you are holy and we're not. We've sinned. We've done so many bad things. At best, we would hope that maybe you would forgive us and set us free, but instead, not only do you forgive us, but you adopt us into your family as your children whom you love. Lord, we praise you for that. We are never gonna be worthy of that. We thank you that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have a family to belong to, a family where we are special and valued and loved. Father, we praise you for that, and and we lift up to you anyone here who isn't yet part of that family. They haven't yet said yes to your gift of, of redemption through Jesus. Maybe there's something holding them back. Maybe they feel like it just couldn't be that free. Surely they have to do something to earn your love. I pray that you would open their eyes, set them free, help them to see that it's a gift. Or if there's someone here who who just can't get to the point where they believe that Jesus really did live and die and rise from the dead, I pray that you would convince them, that you would open their eyes, that they would be able to believe in Jesus for redemption. We pray, Father, that everyone here might come to know you as Father. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room who when they look at you, they see a disappointed father or they see a a disinterested dictator or they see a hockey referee, they see someone who doesn't want to be around them. I pray that you would correct that error in their minds. I pray that you would banish that false view of you and that you would replace it with, with the true view that, that they would see you as a dad who loves them desperately, who cares about them, who, who loves them and values them so much that you sent your one perfect son to die in their place. I pray that they would believe that you love them and accept them. Father, we thank you. We're not worthy, we'll never be worthy. We praise you and thank you that we are safe in your family and in your love all through the death and resurrection of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Happy Easter.